This episode is sponsored by QuantStamp and Nexo.io. Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Coindesk's Michael Casey and Sheila Warren of the World Economic Forum as they explore the connections between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. This episode is brought to you by the Coindesk Podcast Network. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Sheila Warren. Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Sheila Warren. Axie Infinity is one of a number of play-to-earn games that's been compared to both Pokemon Go and an NFT market. Users battle brightly colored creatures for in-game rewards that can be converted into cash. From 2018, when it was founded, to July of this year, Axie Infinity brought in a modest $21 million in revenue. That number exploded between July and August of this year, jumping nearly 23 times to $485 million. The transaction volume for the game recently topped $2 billion, and Axie's native tokens also have risen in value, approaching $4 billion. The game currently has 1.8 million active players. And one of the more interesting aspects of this phenomenon is that it was driven in part by a huge uptake in activity in a country that isn't necessarily known for being an economic giant, the Philippines. The Philippines is, on the one hand, a major gateway to Southeast Asia's ASEAN group of nations for overseas firms due to its large, young, and tech-savvy population. And on the other hand, it's one of the poorest nations in that group. Over 11.7% of the Filipino people, who are primarily farmers and fisher folk, live under the international poverty line and have no forms of acceptable identification. 61% live on $7 a day or less. And the country's inefficient local governance and dependence on overseas Filipino workers have made the economy one of the hardest hit by the COVID-19 pandemic in all of the ASEAN region. Now, some of the challenges in governance are due to geography. The Philippines are an archipelago consisting of about 7,640 islands with a population of 111 million people, over 10% of which live abroad. In fact, the Philippines is the fourth largest source of immigrants to the United States after Mexico, China, and India, accounting for nearly 5% of the U.S.'s foreign-born population. And the Philippine diaspora is one of the largest and most spread out in the world, spanning over 100 countries. In addition to the U.S., countries with large Filipino populations include Saudi Arabia, Canada, the UAE, Malaysia, Japan, Australia, Italy, Spain, and the U.K. also boast populations over 100,000. In 2020, Filipinos working in the U.S. sent around $12 billion in cash to the Philippines. The country is heavily dependent on these overseas Filipino workers. Personal remittances received in the Philippines accounted for almost 10% of the country's total GDP in 2020. That isn't the highest in the world. Countries like El Salvador and Nepal, they hover closer to 25%. But it's still staggeringly high for a country that prior to the pandemic was the second fastest growing in the world and remains the most popular destination for U.S. firms who are expanding into ASEAN. Part of the reason for this will be familiar to longtime listeners and viewers of the show. It's a crisis of leadership. Corruption in the Philippines has been a widespread problem for a very long time, going all the way back to the Spanish colonial administration. According to Get Integrity's 2020 Philippines Corruption Report, the Philippines suffered from many incidents of corruption and crime in many aspects of civic life and across various sectors, including the police, judicial system, and politics. And Transparency International's 2020 Corruption Perceptions Index ranks the country, along with Moldova, 
in 115th place out of 180 countries. And of course, anyone who reads the news will be at least baseline familiar with the trials and tribulations of the current populist president, Rodrigo Duterte, who took office in 2016 and immediately launched a controversial crackdown on illegal drugs that's left more than 6,000 suspects dead and alarmed many governments and human rights groups. In fact, the International Criminal Court launched an investigation into these killings, which has been stymied by the president's vow never to cooperate with the inquiry and never to allow ICC investigators to enter the country. So it seems fair to say overall, the Philippines isn't exactly a high trust environment, at least when it comes to the public sector. We're speaking today to two individuals who are deeply familiar with the Philippines and can shed light on the context in which Axie and other crypto opportunities have taken root. First, we're joined by Maria Antonio Arroyo, known as Maui. Maui is a serial entrepreneur, impact investor, educator, and biologist. In 2018, she became the founder and principal of the Ignite Impact Fund, which is the first fund focused exclusively on eradicating income and access poverty in the Philippines. She's also founded a consulting firm and co-founded a social enterprise that now supplies pasteurized eggs to major hotels, a fashion brand that upcycles leather jackets into bags, a media company that promotes independent Filipino films, and a property development firm. We'll then bring in Leah Callan Butler, director at Amfarsis, which is a consulting firm focused on the role of technology in advancing economic development in Asia Pacific. Leah is also the co-founder and former chief impact officer for Intimate, which is a cryptocurrency focused on challenging institutional bias to bring trust, safety, and inclusion to the adult industry. And she's a screenwriter and narrator of Play to Earn, a documentary short that tells the story of one small community in the rural Philippines that turned to Axie Infinity to earn an income in cryptocurrency during the COVID-19 pandemic. It's been a minute since one of our country-focused episodes, and needless to say, I'm eager to dive right in. But first, let's welcome my co-host, Michael Casey. Hey, Michael. Hey, Sheila. So, you know, I was thinking about this diaspora community, and I have to ask you, is there an Aussie diaspora? Do you call it a diaspora? Well, today's show is going to be a pretty good indicator of that. If you were to sort of measure four people that are going to be the show, two of them belong to the Aussie diaspora. So <laughs> I think the answer is going to be yes. One's in the Philippines, one's here in the US. You know, it's kind of interesting because if you think about the Philippines, it sort of takes its overseas workers so seriously, right? It's probably the, you know, the country that's sort of so well known for how much they integrated into the broader idea of the Philippine economy and the Philippine extended community. You know, Australia has a little bit of that because there was a big debate when I first came to the US. I, you know, had an Aussie passport, but I married an American. I've got American children. It's very tied to this place. I thought I did want to get a US passport, but I was never going to do it because Australia would require you for some time to renounce your Australian citizenship if you took on US citizenship. But then there was a sort of big sea change of thinking in Australia, and they moved toward allowing dual citizenship as a proactive measure, actually, to try to encourage the expat connection to home and to sort of bring in, sort of like to really try to build, I think, that idea of the global Australian. Now, of course, Australia is actually sort of one of the most isolated countries in the world because it has a notoriously heavy, you know, fortress Australia approach to the pandemic and it's under sort of heavy lockdown. Which is interesting because I think that in itself is challenging this idea of Australia's kind of very sort of forwarding there. But anyway, this isn't a conversation about Australia. This is all about the Philippines, which isn't too far from Australia. But I just think it's an interesting way to frame it because obviously, you know, Australia is a wealthier country. But these questions that we talk about in the show a lot about these, you know, foreign international payments and the connectivity across borders that's so critical to the crypto community, I think apply in all sorts of different manifestations, whether it's a wealthier country like Australia or a not so wealthy place like the Philippines. Anyway. Yeah. And you know, it's so interesting because I mean, I remember someone pointing out to me in my early 20s, you know, I was like, oh, an American expat, you know, living in India. 
And she said, well, you know, expats are what you call people from wealthy countries who move to poorer countries. When you go the other way, it's called an immigrant, you know? And I thought, oh my God, like that's really powerful and correct you know, and true. And so I think the way we think about diaspora communities is really fascinating. Not We tend to use that more for immigrant communities rather than expats who are kind of seen as these adventurers who leave their, you know, their countries and go. The dynamics is something I think it's important to keep in mind because I think that the reason that people leave their countries differs. And if you're really looking and leaving because you want to have economic betterment and you're looking to basically create something that's going to give you access to a remittance quarter, send money back home to care for your family, to do whatever it might be, as opposed to striking out for adventure, it's a very different proposition. And yes, the policies in the countries are going to reflect that perspective. So all that being said, in addition to having a thriving diaspora community, the Philippines itself, Maui, I'll direct this question to you and welcome. Philippines has thriving culture industry itself and tremendous opportunity within the country itself. How are things in the country economically today? And how significant do you think foreign money, whether it's the remittance corridor or whether it's just investments from foreign countries, like foreign nations, foreign investment firms, will continue to be both through this pandemic and beyond? Thanks for having me, Sheila and Michael. I'm really pleased to be here. The Philippines is, and thanks for giving that very accurate summary of my country. The Philippines is, I would say, an oligarchipelago. So 70% of the money that is spent in our malls is from OFW money. So that's from the diaspora. It accounts for that much of our economy as well. Best place to put up a small business is to put up generic pharmacy right next to the remittance center to the Western Union or the pawn shop where you're getting your remittances from, because that way you don't spend the money. You like go straight from getting the money to pay for your health care where I think 80% of Filipinos still pay out of pocket for their healthcare. So it's such that because you're spending all that money in malls and right beside the remittance center, 80% of our money goes to 19 families, right? So you're looking at a country where, yes, trust is an issue in politics, but it's also, it's interesting because we have sort of fourth industrial revolution technology, and yet we have sort of first industrial revolution, you know, think the robber baron era where, you know, you had the Rockefellers, the Carnegie's, the, uh, you know, Vanderbilt, and they sort of live the good life. And everybody else is just working their butts off basically to survive and to earn a lot more money. You go live abroad for a while or you go take some contract work. But at the same time, up north in the Philippines, in it's called CESA, the Cagayan Economic Zone, we registered 49 crypto exchanges, and it took a while before the SEC in the Philippines just wrapped its head around, can we offer this to Filipinos? Because there's been a lot of research on decentralized finance, and I'm sure Leah can talk some more about this as well, but I think there's like $30 billion lost in onerous fees during remittances, as estimated by the World Bank. And I think that's why the UN... Sustainable development goals, part of that is getting those fees down from 5% to 3%, just so that people could get more money in remittances. I'm less interested in that and more interested as foreign money comes in. And how do you get the remittances working for people in the country so that it's a choice whether you want to be an expat? So we're not immigrants, we're expats, right? It's a choice as opposed to this is the only way my family and I will survive. Right. So that means actually getting people to use blockchain and in a country where we're dead last in terms of, if you look at the world value survey, trust in other people and GDP. So we're dead last in the world. Right. So 
and blockchain is supposed to be a very trustworthy technology. And since we're so, we love Axie, right? I mean, we love gaming, you know, especially during the pandemic, there's not much to do, right? <laughs> if you're happy enough to bless enough to be able to be stopped at home with a good internet connection, then you're going to be playing, whether it's Pokemon or another video game. And it's something that Filipinos, it's an easy sell. It's like, you mean I can earn money while wasting my time? This is great, right? I'll be entertained and these are cute. So part of the huge boom is because Filipinos, 97% of us are on Facebook. We're all over social media. And all the mobile gaming companies want Filipinos to play their games. We're really good at casual gaming. <laughs> Quantstamp is looking for talented people to join our team and help us secure the blockchain industry. Our clients include major blockchain projects like Ethereum 2.0, DeFi projects like Maker, Compound, and Aave, and global enterprises like Toyota. As a fully remote team, working for Quantstamp means a great work-life balance, an environment that values creativity and effectiveness, and compensation packages on par with big tech. Come work for the leading blockchain security company. Learn more at quantstamp.com careers. Looking to make the most of your crypto assets? Nexo.io's got you covered. Grow your wealth securely with Nexo's high-yield interest accounts. Buy crypto on your terms directly within Nexo's platform and start earning daily compounding interest right away. Get the cash you need without selling your crypto from just 6.9% APR. Instantly swap between 100 crypto and traditional currency pairs. And don't worry, Nexo is insured against losses up to $375 million. Get the most of your crypto at nexo.io. That's nexo.io. That's so fascinating and interesting, you know, that it's a cultural phenomenon, right? And is this generational or does it really cross generations? You have a very young population in the Philippines, for sure. Unlike many countries in Asia, where you have a, like Japan, the opposite of Japan, where like the issue there is that like everyone's older, right? And the birth rate is just ever negative and declining. Is that part of it? Or is it like grandma's playing with grandkids? What does it look like kind of at the family level? I think you have to understand we're a mobile first country, right? So most Filipinos have two mobile phones and we have two mobile phones because we have the slowest internet speed except for Afghanistan. So that's why we spend so much time on our phones because the internet is so slow. Given that, if you're at the mall or you have stable internet connection at home, which only 40% of the country does have broadband connections at home, then for a certain class of people, the class of people you know, who grew up playing the Atari, right, who have some discretional income because they had a travel budget, which got torpedoed by the pandemic, right? And now it's like, oh, I can either redecorate my house or I can play this thing. It's easy for that sector of the population. I would say 60% of the country has never heard about Axie because it takes money to play that, right? Maybe they've heard it dimly, but they're playing other games, maybe, but very sporadically. Stuff that doesn't need a lot of internet. And again, it's a trust issue about why am I giving these people my money, right? It just seems like any other game that you need to pay to play, and that's not going to fly in the Philippines. So it's interesting, though, that all the money generated by Axie in the Philippines, you know, even if just a portion of that, if you could just join the, I don't know, 2 3% capital allocation of that four projects in the Philippines, right? You would actually get more players because you'd have a rising middle class. So it's not like grandparents are playing with kids. It's more like middle class, 
I would say kids, but middle class Gen Xers to millennials are stuck at home with their broadband and maybe they've binged everything on Netflix, right? So it's partially a cultural thing, definitely by the urban middle class. Super interesting. Leah, I'd love to bring you in now and just, you know, first just to help us frame how to think about the economy in the Philippines and how you think about in the work that you do, the connection between the economic foundation that the Philippines has, which we talked about to some extent, and how that maybe paved the way for adoption of crypto as a general matter, but then also for Axie to have, and games, NFTs to have this sort of tremendous uptake. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I'm a huge fan. So it's a dream come true to be here. <laughs> Can I just interrupt quickly and say that you also did, Leah, send a photo once of you, a beautiful beach scene. It was this sort of dreamy moment and you were listening to our podcast at the same time. I thought it was like a wonderful advertisement. So thank you for that. Yes, it made our day. <laughs> I was like, we borrowed that and use that as a background. But anyway, carry on. I didn't want to interrupt. I'm sorry. <laughs> Absolutely. I transfer all rights to Coindesk. (laughs) (laughs) It's probably a good way to frame it, actually, because I came to the Philippines in 2018 and I've never been based in Manila. I've always lived in rural areas. So first I was in Pampanga and now I'm actually based in Palawan, which is an absolutely stunning island and a really beautiful place to ride out the pandemic and also take pictures of the Money Reimagined podcast on your phone while you're listening to it on a beach. But I guess prior to that, you know, when I first arrived in the Philippines, I came here for the business process outsourcing industry, which many people are probably familiar with. We were outsourcing a software dev team who were working on building a crypto payments gateway. And we just decided to come here and spend a month with them on the ground to work with them. And, you know, aside from having a fantastic time with the team and seeing how hungry, committed, ambitious they were, which is, I don't think, something that people often describe their overseas teams as. But when I came here, I just realized that they were so excited for opportunity. We had to stay. But it was kind of also, you know, I was in the space of working on alternative finance products. And when I started to learn about the Philippines, it was, you know, I had to stay for the opportunity. It was a very young population, tech savvy, as you already mentioned, number one social media users in the world. Like everywhere you go, people are stuck on a screen. Everyone's on their phone all day, every day. But also you've got a largely unbanked population. You know, it's sort of around 80% of people don't have a bank account, but it's still a cash-based society. And as you mentioned, remittances are extremely important. So if you're receiving money, you've got to cash out some way. So it was super interesting to kind of be within this space that had built quite a sophisticated and complex network of being able to move money around without needing banks. And to me, I thought, you know, that's kind of a perfect pressure cooker the crypto adoption where the rest of the world is struggling to make it happen. So that was like back in 2018 and I was really excited about payments. The hilarious thing is that I kind of think fast forward today and everyone's so excited about NFT gaming and play to earn and remittances is like the most unsexy, boring topic you could possibly talk about. But (laughs) I really believe that it was the foundations of Philippine remittance and crypto asset backed remittance that made all of this possible. So I guess you know, it's probably useful to explain a little bit about the cash in cash out network that exists here. Because, you know, in Australia, if I need to get cash out, well, I just go to the bank or an ATM, or I just pay via my phone or a card because I have all those tools. But here, that's not common. So there's all these amazing ways that you can get in and out of cash based systems, or online systems, 
through things like your local pawn shop. Sabuana Lulier is a really popular one. There's 2,500 bricks and mortar stores across that archipelago of islands you just described, whereas most of the bricks and mortar banks are in the city. So in the rural areas, we use those pawn shops. So we might go to the 7-Eleven to deposit cash and then it pops up in our crypto wallet or you know, pre-crypto, it was just popping up in your Gcash wallet, for example. And I think that's kind of really important to understand about the culture. Like over here, it's not weird to reserve a ticket online and then walk down to the 7-Eleven store and pay for it in cash. Like that would sound so weird for someone in Australia, but here that's actually kind of normal and how people do it. So I guess when those sorts of cashing, cash out networks actually started to allow people to get in and out of crypto, that really, for me, sets the foundations for something like Play to Earn to take off here because it wasn't so new for people. I mean, I guess I can keep going on, but you might have another question. Yeah, you've sort of half answered the question I was going to ask about like what is it that's unique about the Filipino circumstances that led to the Axie phenomenon? Let's dwell on this cash in, cash out thing, right? Because one of the things that's so interesting about that is that at least before we had all of the KYC rules and everything in place around the world, there was this interesting interface between cash and crypto in that the former has no KYC on it and nor does the latter, right? And so there is a nice sort of affinity that comes with that. And I think like one of the appeals of the international play on crypto and certainly the growth in the Philippines, but also in Africa and elsewhere is that it's largely handled through things like, you know, Paxful and, you know, local Bitcoins, where it is about meeting and paying for cash. And sort of like that gives you that more private structure. Is that still in play or is it now a largely KYC'd kind of environment where everybody, whether they're paying with cash or not, has to sort of like identify themselves and buy their Bitcoin or, you know, game tokens or whatever? Yeah, it's a really good question. Like, Paxful is big here. And I also think there is a lot of sort of very informal practice around people just pulling money via Facebook groups and kind of cashing out by one person, which is a, you know, obviously a very trust-based transaction. But we also have BSP licensed exchanges. So the BSP is the Banco Central in Filipinas, which is our central bank. And they do have licenses for any kind of institution that is servicing Filipinos within the country. So that's the likes of coins.ph. Everyone likes to point to coins.ph. They've had incredible adoption. I think it's at 16 million users now is their latest stat, which is absolutely nuts for a crypto wallet, you know, if you compare it around the world. But then you've also got the likes of BloomX, there's PDAX. We do have a number of these licensed exchanges. They're regulated, they're compliant, and they're very much you know, operating in a very compliant manner here in the Philippines. Things like BloomX, for example, they've been particularly forward thinking. I'm jumping ahead here, but they were the first to offer a direct pair between SLP, which is the reward token that you earn in the game Axie Infinity, and Philippine Pesos. So that happened, you know, toward the end of 2020, I think, or early 2021, and was an incredibly forward-thinking thing. Like here you have this BSP license exchange that is offering a direct pair with, you know, a largely random in-game token that people are earning in such great volumes that the demand was there. And I think, you know, that's bringing a level of legitimacy to this movement, which is really helping propel it forward. Just to make one quick observation. 
in the very early days of Bitcoin, before proper exchanges were created, one of the ways that people were actually exchanging it was through Linden coins, which was in Second Life. And they created these mechanisms. And so you'd have this in-game token that had some value within Second Life and you would pay for them. And it's just amazing that kind of, you know, just sort of automatic, organic way in which communities that are interested in exchanging create currencies or create currency exchange things. It sounds like the Philippines is rich with that kind of experimentation and creativity, which I think is fascinating. And so I was just wondering whether, Maori, you'd be able to elaborate on that bit and like, you know, what is it about, like, what makes this sort of creative response to the various technologies and ideas that pop up around moving money around? Well, I'm glad that you mentioned Second Life as a gamer also, because one of the things about Second Life, that old game, was that about 80% of the content of that game was user-created. So people would be paying Linden dollars, this virtual currency, because somebody had designed a really nice costume for their character or built something for their Second Life house. And Filipinos are really good at that. Like, we will design stuff. We're very creative. It's very rare to find someone in the Philippines who doesn't either sing, dance, or have some sort of artistic skill. We do have a lot of audience members as well, people who you don't want to sing and dance, but we're typically very creative people. And I'm sure Leah knows that karaoke is never far, especially by the beach. Yep. All of the bands I'd ever listened to in Singapore were always Filipino bands. It was a good... <laughs> That's true. Yep. And I think that it's really interesting that Leah points out the expansion of Axie and how you can translate that to money. It's just that people used to, it's just the padala system. It's like you're going home to the Philippines or you're going to the US. Could you just, you know, hand this off to my cousin? So there have been all of these traditional ways to, it's not weird for Filipinos to hand some money off to do this or like Indian. Yep. Yeah. Same thing. I mean, you have a U.S. bank account? Yes, with my cousin who's in the U.S. And I'll just tell her, do you trust people? You have to, usually family members. What I'm really looking forward to is that if Axie sort of grows to build trust in the sort of asset class of tokens, because Bitcoin is, and I think deservedly so, getting a bad rap for, you know, I think in between Norway and Argentina is one of the 30th largest energy consumers. In the world. It's a bit like gold, right? Bitcoin. It's like you can just exchange it, but it's this shiny thing that we think has value. But what I'm hoping for is that when people who grew up with Axie, right, and are now used to the idea that tokens have value, we could start having securitized tokens, right, for projects that remittance money can fund, right? Because people don't want to invest in Manila, right? I want to invest in Palawan, right? I want to invest to preserve the coral reefs. Because that means better tourism, which means better income for coastal communities, bringing people out of extreme poverty. And so, you know, President Duterte, where he's going after all the illegal drugs, that's a symptom of the poverty, right? I mean, because if you live on less than $1 a day, you will have to find some violent entrepreneurship when nonviolent entrepreneurship doesn't make you as much money, right? So you don't want to force people into that. And I'm hoping that because we're so, I would say, forward thinking about our regulations on crypto, that we could serve as an example in the development world also about how you can innovate development financing, how you can provide and guarantee additionality because of blockchain. So, you know, and then you would pull people out of the first industrial revolution into the fourth. 
quite quickly, in fact. You know, one of the reasons I love these country-focused episodes, and I was so excited to do one on the Philippines, you know, we talk a lot about crypto. We, there's an enabling environment around crypto, right? It's a combination of psychological and cultural and social readiness for this kind of thing, and also a supportive environment. It doesn't mean that there's regulation that is pro or, you know, whatever. It's that you're not like banning things. You're not cutting off, you know, all the avenues for experimentation before they even have time to grow roots. And I look at the Philippines as a phenomenal example of the convergence of these two things. You have a young tech savvy, you know, I would call like designed to be crypto native, honestly, population, right? When I think about crypto natives in the US, I think about like my kids. And I think about it in the Filipino population, I feel like it's just going to be so much faster that adoption curve because of some of the things that you both have touched on and talked about that I only know about from reading a lot about this, right? It's fascinating to hear this. And then in combination, you've got a government that is looking for alternatives in this relatively low trust environment where you have, I love that uh, oligopolego, what did you say? I love that term. Oligarchipelago. Oligarchipelago. (laughs) Oligarchipelago. I love that term. I think it's hilarious, but it's also like, that's a big problem. You know, you think about robber barons and kind of the legacy that they left in this country on everything from the state, politics, philanthropy, investments, like where investments were made in infrastructure, all of that was determined by a handful, honestly, of people who all kind of knew each other. And that's not great for the rest of the people. So to have an idea that there's this entire new economic opportunity that is available regularly to most people that already have the tool, namely a mobile device that they need in order to engage with it, is I just think tremendously exciting. So what is your sense, either of you, if you have a sense of, you know, how those in power, like the government, regulators, those kinds of authority figures, how they see this. Are they really bullish on it? Are they nervous about it? Because we've hinted that there's some support of this and this idea this could be kind of a gateway to more opportunity. Things like, could we use this to fund biodiversity and other kinds of things that are critically important to the Philippines? Do you have a sense of if that's the perception or is this really something that's still kind of seen as a novelty game that's played by people that, yes, it has value, but maybe it's here today, gone tomorrow? What's the sense? Yeah, I mean, I guess I can take that one, but I'd probably take it back a step because I think the real opportunity that is being offered by a play to earn as well as Web3 is this idea that you don't necessarily have to be contained by what's happening, you know, based on the place that you were born or the family that you grew up with or the regulations that are happening at at a broader level. Web3 is really allowing this opportunity for people to participate no matter who they are and where they come from. I mean, one of the things that I think is really interesting to think about is the rise of the metaverse Filipino worker. You mentioned the OFW before, the overseas Filipino worker. I mean, now there's this idea of the metaverse Filipino worker where they don't have to leave home via train or plane or boat or bus. You know, a lot of people, it's not just international. They have to go province to province or they have to leave their home in the province to go to the city. Now they don't have to. They can stay at home and be with their families and not pay that emotional tax that's required in terms of loneliness to leave home. So that's for me what the real question is. Like when everyone was focused before on making remittances cheaper and faster, that was the symptom. It wasn't actually the cause. And the cause is that there wasn't enough good jobs and enough income for people to earn in their own home, where they're born, where they live, and to be able to use their talent in appropriate ways. So I think that's what's exciting for me. Like a lot of people focus on Axie, but also we just heard that MetaMask hit 10 million users globally and 20% of those are in the Philippines. So these are people who are actively using not just play to earn games, but DeFi protocols, 
and you know more advanced crypto exchanges as well. So I really feel that the conversation is turning to you know what is the problem here that should be solved, and can these technologies kind of meet that problem where it is, rather than you know trying to put a band aid fix on I guess what was the issue in the first place. I love the way you took that, Leah. And I'll say you know this is one of my frustrations when people are so hyper focused on the U.S. is the U.S. both socially, culturally, and from a regulatory perspective, is behind a lot of other countries in terms of ease of adoption, readiness of adoption. People immediately understand why things like NFTs are interesting, why tokens have value and can have value in other places. And the adoption curve, again, is fast, and you don't have this kind of legacy structure that makes it really challenging to know how to operate. And so it's interesting to me that so many builders in this space are like obsessed with what's going on in Washington right now, like obsessed to the point that it's like, look at Twitter and it's just, it's just crazy depending on how you curated your feed, I suppose. It's just going nuts with like micro analyzing every single word said by anybody in the United States, right? Who's in a position of regulatory or other authority. Whereas meanwhile, look at what's happening. 20% of MetaMax wallets are in the Philippines. I mean, that is, you say wallets are users. I mean, we don't know, right? We don't really know. That is astonishing. That is an astounding statistic. And so I just think as a community, we have to recognize who are we building for, right? Like, who are we building for? How are we thinking about the needs of other communities beyond those who are, in some cases, the builders themselves? How are we encouraging innovation in other environments that know and understand different cultural contexts? But Maui, I, that was just, I wanted to make that point, but just uh, Maui, hand it over to you to kind of get your thoughts on this and how you're thinking about all of this and this idea of the metaverse foreign worker. And I love this. What do you think? I'm in violent agreement with Leah. I really think that a trust tipping point is coming upon us like a tidal wave and it'll happen. And I think that it will freak the old mainstream guys out. So we have OMGs, right? The old mainstream guys who made their money in retail and real estate, right? They're very brick and mortar. And then we have the second generation, the COOs, right? The child of owner. This is their title. And you know, they want to get in on this, right? But it's kind of disingenuous to think that all this change is going to happen without necessarily some sort of transfer of power. And they don't like that, right? So they're starting to think of like, can I co-opt this? Can I innovate by acquiring, right? Can I have a, I don't know, a Rockefeller token or a Carnegie token or something? Because they own the bank. So they're thinking it would be great to have more people banked, but they should be banking with me, not this weird stuff, right? So there's a little bit of, I guess, worry and dysfunction that like this could really become a thing because people had this sense with this, with BPO, with outsourcing before, like this sounded crazy before because, you know, I don't know if I wanted to invest in it, but now it's starting to pick up. So we'll see how that shake out because... I mean, just to use the U.S. metaphor, really the opportunities there is for a Ford, right? And innovators like the Wright brothers, which is the thing that really brought in the early 20th century, which brought massive growth to the U.S. And it's the same thing you're going to see in a more Asian example when South Koreans, I mean, South Korea was a backwater after the war. Now we buy our phones from them because Koreans invested in Koreans, right? The Taiwanese invested in Taiwan. And it's going to be time when the Filipinos start investing in ourselves. And maybe we're going to do that with securitized tokens when we can finally buy them. Because the global Filipino diaspora would love to, if you're a tenant farmer and you're earning a dollar a day because you don't own the land where the coconut trees are, 
and I give you an opportunity to own part of the coconut processing plant, you don't need to own the land, right? You're owning a chunk of the coconut processing plant, right? You're going to 10x your money very quickly. So if you're going from $1 to $10 a day, that's wonderful. And it's a matter of the government actually being forward with the regulations, but also, again, the trust tipping point is going to come. We'll just have to see what happens. Wait for the next chapter. Unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap in a moment, but I just wanted to, Sheila, just say a couple of words because I find this stuff fascinating. Remember, we had Bill Tai on the show some time ago, you know, that legendary investor. And it was close to Philip Rosedale who, you know, founded Second Life. And they talked about how they just sort of like imagined what money and sort of the creation of this kind of environment would sort of basically spawn the communities that then would come under Second Life. And what I'm loving about this, this real life version of this is the intersection between gaming and, you know, solutions for money, solutions for investment. And it just gets me thinking about where innovation comes from. You know, we tend to, we create these very rigid models, like you have innovation strategists and sort of these very formalized roles within companies here in the US. And everyone looks to Silicon Valley and there's all these buzzwords, right? And it's all very deliberate and sort of procedural and thought through. Whereas this all sort of organic creativity thing that is just like, well, who says I have to do it this way? We're going to do it that way. It is sort of like something that is born out of necessity sometimes. It's also born out of, yeah, a creative culture, but it's also born out of, you know, just suddenly this weird intersection of tools and ideas. And then that's what I'm getting a sense of in the Philippines. I find it extremely encouraging because this is a social technology, right? This is a technology, as all money is a social technology, that is born out of the interactivity of human beings. It's not something that you go into a workshop and build for yourself. You build these things collectively. And I think that's just a really fascinating word. I love these, the OMGs and the OFWs and the MFWs. Like, you know, you guys are also incredible inventors of acronyms from the sounds of it, uh, Maui. I think that's a way of meaning, right? I remember Maui when we met in Davos, gosh, like, to almost two years ago, you know, we were talking about digital currency as a general matter. And we're talking about central banks and whether central banks are going to be moving into the space and whether crypto is going to take a foothold. And this was before any of the NFT stuff blew up in any fashion. That was kind of like, it was crypto kitties days, right? So it was a very, very different time. And they were just kind of a novelty item. And we could see there was going to be something there. We weren't quite sure what it was going to look like and, you know, and if it was going to really take. And this is just an incredible example, I think, of how when you combine, again, a culture that is ambitious and hungry, you know, and that is not afraid of technology and is super digitally native, mobile native, crypto native, I'd even say like just psychologically crypto native in that way. And you combine that with an environment in which you aren't really hampered by a lot of concerns about, you know, being banned or there's a taxation thing happening. We have to talk about in the Philippines, there's a big taxation thing happening there around what happens when you flip your NFT and you realize all this gain that's not unusual. We've spent you know, other episodes talking about taxes. The Philippines is not immune to taxation and taxation and export issues. However, there isn't this concept of you know, cutting off innovation or being worried that your entire fortune is suddenly going to you know, vanish overnight or you won't be able to sort of use those tokens in other ways or create a secondary market around. And that's not really a concern at this time, at least. And so I think that it's fascinating to watch what an adoption curve looks like in such environments. And that's kind of what you know, somebody of us who are in this space are excited about. It's the creation of economic opportunity. People didn't have it before through a combination of low trust that's brought about by corruption, this oligopolistic behavior, and just kinds of economic realities, whether that's around land ownership, whatever, property rights, whatever it might be that's preventing vast smarts of super smart, 
ambitious, excited people from really, you know, creating an opportunity. So I love this idea that we can kind of start thinking about the immigrant expat thing and almost put that to the side and say, you can now use your skills and talents where you are, not pay that emotional tax you talked about, Leah, and create a livelihood and better standard of living for not just your family, but the entire culture. So to me, and particularly, you know, with the focus in the Philippines on biodiversity, it being one of the most prosperous in terms of natural resources countries in the entire world, there is tremendous, I think, opportunity for us to be looking at the Philippines as a leader in this space. And so thank you both, Maui Arroyo and Leah Callum Butler for joining us today. As always, my co-host, Michael Casey. Thanks everyone for listening and viewing and stay tuned next week for another episode of Money Reimagined. You've been listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined. This episode featured Sheila Warren, Michael J. Casey, Maria Antonio Arroyo, and Leah Callan Butler. Our theme song is Shepherd, and this episode was edited by Jonas, produced by Michelle Mousseau, and announced by Adam B. Levine, with additional production support provided by Eleanor Paul. Have any questions or comments? Send us an email at podcast@coindesk.com or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening. Thank you.